Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Hey, thanks for listening in. This is Robert. Hey, I'm Zach. Join us for each episode as we apply the gospel to dive into the inner workings of the Christian faith. Are you agnostic or atheist and want to understand Christianity better? Want to learn more about Jesus? Discuss the differences between the modern and early churches? or maybe explore some of the Bible's most interesting characters, then we hope you'll join us in Achieving Christian Thought. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the Achieving Christian Thought podcast. Glad you could join us for another episode. As always, Robert and Zach are joining me here. Hello. And, uh, yeah, if you want to interact with us, definitely visit our Facebook, the Achieving Christian Thought Podcast, our Facebook page. We'd love to interact with you. Um, Also, if you found us on one of the many streaming platforms, definitely leave us a review, leave us a like. We'd appreciate it. But, um, yeah, I think we're going to go ahead and dive kind of right into it. So let me try to get into the headspace here. (laughs) So um. everything seems to be going kind of good, you know, for Israel. Well, not good, but you've got God leading you. Yeah. God's basically providing pretty much everything you need. Yeah. So naturally, we're going to turn around and say, no, we want a human to lead us. Exactly. That's pretty much essentially <laughs> yeah. what yeah. happened back then. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we're going to dive into the various um, the old kings of Israel and kind of how they came to be. So welcome, Zach. Welcome, Robert. And uh, yeah, you guys take it away. All okay. right. Um, so in the beginning, basically just kind of give you guys a little bit of context for those of the, those out there listening that may not have any idea about the old Testament or anything like that. Uh, so you have a lot of historical event, like there's a lot of information in the old Testament. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about like this first little, little couple nuggets of the old Testament, because there's so much there um, but uh, long story short, um, God called God called a man named Abraham to basically father a nation. And over a couple generations, a guy named Jacob came around, and Jacob had two wives plus two concubines. And through him, you had the tw- his twelve sons, which then, over the course of three hundred some plus years developed in the people of a uh, nation of Israel from those 12. That's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel. It's actually named from his uh, 12 sons, which is kind of like where that comes from. Um, so Israel, of course, is in bondage in the beginning. Um, you have the classic moment where Charleston Heston, I mean, Moses <laughs> comes and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then God, you know, throws down some plagues on Egypt. And then finally, Pharaoh says, go. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to say it like that. My bad. Um, and so the whole nation of Israel uh, exoduses the uh, Egyptian captives, which is why it's titled Exodus. Um, and basically with God leading in the front, and then Moses kind of like being his um, 
uh, I guess you could say profit or um, uh, uh, interpreter. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if yeah, you call I would it interpreter. Mediator. Mediator. Good. Yeah. There's there's the scholarly answer. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Yes. I was struggling, and you pulled me out of the mire. Thank you. So Moses was God's mediator, and and basically led the Israelites to the promised land. There's a lot more to it than that. They disobeyed God and kind of didn't listen to what he had to say. And, and so that generation passed away. And then Moses kind of did a, you know, something that God told him not to do. And so he didn't get to go into the promised land. He got to see it from afar. And then Jacob, or no, excuse me, um, Joshua um, takes over the Israelites. And he goes into the promised land, whoops up on most of the Canaanites, but leaves some of them. And then... I'd say there's about a 300-year period of time between the time of when um, Joshua and Caleb kind of were leading Israel, and then after that, after they died, you had various judges kind of as as needed. You know, basically, you have the Israelites um, would fall away from God, and then a foreign country would come in and, and kind of subjugate them for a period of time. They'd cry out to God. God would then raise up a judge. Uh, and then that judge would then deliver Israel from the people that were oppressing them. And it was a, a cycle of basically every generation, every other generation. There's a falling away, and then they'd return to God after oppression. And so there's like this, this, this constant back and forth, like God would do something miraculous through a, a, a judge, deliver Israel, then Israel would fall away to another pagan god, what have you. And then the cycle would just keep on. And so, and this kind of gets into what um, uh, Brian said in the very beginning of the episode. Um, essentially, the, uh, the Israelites um, were having judges for a while, and they got tired of it. And and finally, they're like, we want a king. And God's like, I'll be your king. Trust me. I'm your king. Follow me. And they're like, no, everybody around us has a king. You know, they looked at the Egyptians. They had the Pharaoh. They look at all these other people, you know, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Idiots, and whatever else out there. <laughs> I'm kind of made up the Idiots. But <laughs> but um, each of them had their own king. And so... They wanted to be like everybody else. Instead of actually following Yahweh, they said, let's have a king. And God was like, all right, if that's what you want. And that's the thing that when God says, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Of course, they end up coming to regret it. Um, so you basically had, like I said, you had like 300 years of judges. The last judge officially was Samuel. Um he was the last official judge. And then Samuel anointed a the first king whose name was Saul. And we've talked about Saul a little bit in the past, um, but as a, just kind of a little bit of a background about him, Saul was a Benjamin, Benjaminite. In other words, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And... He looked good, so to speak. You know, when people think of a, a person who leads, um, he looked like a, what a king should look like. Um, he was tall and muscular, what have you. 
and and so everybody looked at Saul and was like, "Oh, there's the king. There's there's the guy. That's the guy." Um, some things you don't we don't really get from the the text that we see. Um, he actually had a lot of I don't necessarily call it nepotism, but a lot of his administration he used a lot of um, the Benjaminites. So he favored his own tribe over the other tribes. He'd appoint people that were his own tribe. And so there's a little bit of favoritism there with his administration. Um, some other things that he did, um, he didn't necessarily do everything bad. Um, he did start out strong. He did start, you know, conquering uh, more of the the um, so back let me back up a little bit so Israel had the promised land um, and then basically about the time of um, Joshua and Caleb they didn't fulfill the complete conquest so God's like okay I'm giving you this land and I'm giving you X amount of territory and he told them that you need to take this territory well, Israel never completed that territory conquest. Um, they became comfortable. They made deals with Canaanites, etc., and they didn't finish it. So when Saul takes over as king, he starts to expand the territory, so to speak. So he's actually fighting the Canaanites a little bit. He, so he is doing some good things, kind of like, um, I guess you could say, reforms. But at the same time, he kind of takes upon himself a few things that God's like, no, you're not supposed to do. So in, in this particular instance, um, the king of Israel and the priesthood are two separate things. And you had Saul, who was the king, and then you had Samuel, who was the spiritual representative of the priesthood. Um, and so... There's a point where Saul took it upon himself to do something that only the priesthood was supposed to do. He offered sacrifices, and that wasn't within his job description to do. Um, and so that was a pretty big deal. Um, he kind of went above and beyond what he should have done. And that's really whenever you start to see like a, um, a sort of, I guess you could say, backsliding of making bad, poor decisions hastily um, instead of waiting on uh, the the, uh, the priest to get there. He took it upon himself to offer the sacrifice, which was a no-no. And then um, Samuel passes away. And, and I think we mentioned this in the past. Um, he kind of offers, um, excuse me, he doesn't offer. He goes to a witch and a medium and seeks counsel and and that was one of the things that you weren't supposed to do as king you were supposed to seek the lord you weren't supposed to seek this um any sort of magical practitioner or what have you um so again you just see saul kind of he started out strong and then he started doing bad things things that really started to take a toll on his kingship because he started doing things he shouldn't do, setting a bad example for Israel. And but before before Samuel passes away, Samuel anoints another king. And I'm gonna let Robert kind of bridge the gap there. Mm -hmm. Um because you do have a little bit of time 
where Saul is still king and then David has been anointed king but isn't king yet. Um, so one thing I will say that about that also is David married, um, I believe it's one of Saul's daughters. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, he did. So he became an official part of Saul's house, um, but he himself, David, was a um, from the tribe of Judah. So again, you kind of see God anointing this person, this David, and I'll let Robert take over. All right. So it's when we get to David that we get to uh, the exciting part of the whole story, in my opinion, because... With Saul, you had uh, the startup pains. Uh, this was literally God kind of teaching the nation indirectly a lesson. that This is the person they wanted. God allowed it. God knew what Saul would become. God knew what was in his heart, but he allowed these people to enthrone him specifically so that they would hopefully learn to turn towards him, God, and not towards the other nations and the things that they had that were so flashy. Like Zach said, the reason they wanted a king was to look like the other nations around them. The ideal for Israel would have been just a host of human judges, and the only king that they ever would have had would have been God himself, and that's the uh, book of Judges itself. But uh, the people wanted a king. They got Saul. And eventually, by the time David comes into the picture, Saul has completely turned around from who he once was. He's become the villain of the story. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually, uh, not to exaggerate too much, but this is the, the wicked miser in Grimm's Fairy Tales. This is the man who has not a single redeeming quality in him in the storyline by the time David comes around. And of course, like every person, he had his good and his bad traits, but being fallen, this is the part of the story where you see the contrast between him and David. And so Samuel is called by God to go out and find a replacement. God says, okay, I knew he was going to do this. It's time for me to reject Saul as king. And nobody wears the crown without my say-so. And so I'm taking it off of Saul's head and putting it on someone else that I've already appointed for this. But Samuel, you have to go and proclaim that message. And Samuel falls for the same tricks that the people of Israel do. They're looking at the outwards. And as Zach said, Saul fit everything that Hollywood is looking for when they cast an action hero. Tall, handsome, muscular, fit. Uh, your uh, random balding uncle down the street would never be cast in a Mission Impossible movie. They're looking for that outward layer. That's what the nation of Israel saw. And honestly, even in his role as prophet of God, that's what Samuel was subconsciously looking for. And he winds up in this small little dinky town that you've probably heard of because of Christmas, Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it really was Nowheresville, uh, USA, to put it one way. But not USA. Not USA. Middle East. Middle East, USA. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, It sounds like you have this weird accent. Middle East, USA. What? <laughs> Uh, but anyway, uh, Bethlehem, it, the the word just means house of bread. And it was this tiny village, and you can visit it today. Bethlehem is still standing. And, I mean, you can walk through the village within, you know, minutes. This place is tiny. It's a speck on the map. And Samuel shows up, and these farmers and these shepherds are living in this little village. 
And God leads him to the house of a man named Jesse. And he is going to be attached to the name of the Messiah because of the godliness of his son. Um, Isaiah calls Jesus not by name at, at the time. He wasn't born yet, but he talks about the future Messiah. And one of Messiah's titles is the branch of Jesse. And so this man goes from a no one by worldly accounts, to someone who's got, who God already had his eye on because he was so faithful in his quiet life. And so Samuel has an inkling from God that one of Jesse's sons, and he has several of them, one of Jesse's sons is the next king to advance Saul. He's the anti-Saul. Everything Saul has become, David will hold on to. Uh, everything Saul has become, David will fight against. Everything Saul used to be, David will hold on to to fix that sentence. But uh, Jesse, immediate heresy. (laughs) I just lost my position at my church, folks. (laughs) It was that easy. But but, uh, Jesse brings in all of his older sons, um, and it's like bonanza. They're all strapping. They're all very fit. They're all very handsome, and Samuel's excited. He's seeing other Saul's line up. Samuel sees it and gets excited. God sees it and not so much. To put it another way, God sees a bunch of Saul's lined up, and so he is not going to put another dud on the throne. God has made his point. He's ready to appoint someone else. And so Samuel goes through each and every one of Jesse's sons except one, And the answer to his prayer is, no, not this one, no, not this one. And Samuel's getting a little confused and a little afraid. He said, well, did I waste my time here? And Jesse, even as a throwaway, he says, oh, yeah, I've got one more boy. He's the youngest. He's a squirt. He's out there watching the sheep as we speak. So Jesse didn't even bother to pull him in for this. He he did not imagine this. This is kind of the male version, if this doesn't sound too weird. This is the male version of the Cinderella story. One of my children is going to be chosen. They're going to get all the attention, all the fun stuff. The lottery is going to be won. This is going to happen. And he pulls in these sons that he is convinced is going to get the prize. And and David was even, by his own father, was considered outside of this. It says that he was handsome. He wasn't ugly. But the thing was, he was small. He was very easy to overlook. And so God sees David's heart and knows how sincere he is. And we don't know this at the time, but later in the stories we piece evidence together, we know that David, watching sheep, would use that time to pray to God. All the alone time he had out in the fields, he would compose psalms. He was very musically inclined, and psalm is just a song for those who don't know. And he would look up and he would pray to the heavens, and he would thank God for everything that he was given, and all this stuff was hidden inside of a little boy because you can't see prayer. It's not a flame sitting on top of your head, but God heard and saw everything that came out of his heart. And so uh, when David is finally anointed, the rest of the family is amazed. This is not the boy who was supposed to become the leader of the nation because all these other brothers relatively speaking, politically speaking, they're going to pass into nobodies in exchange for their little squirt brother. because And, and even Samuel learned his lesson that day. God himself chided him, uh, not punished, but chided. He said, you look at the, the face, the arms, the legs, God looks at the heart, period. And that is the way Israel should have done all of their business to begin with if they wanted to reflect God's own heart. 
And so Samuel anoints David. This is made official. But Saul, who is still physically on the throne, his rear end is on the seat, Mm -hmm. and he's not giving up without a fight. And so this is the omnipotent God waging his version of war on a man's free will. Now, if he had wanted to, he could have literally just swatted Saul off the throne. He could have killed over from uh, cancer. He could have just died some horrible accident that looked like an accident. God actually has deposed kings like that. King Herod went out in a horrible way uh, many years down the road, centuries down the road. But this story, God still had a purpose for Saul despite everything. And so here uh, we get into David, and um, I'll throw it out there as a little breadcrumb. I personally believe that the story of David has been the inspiration for two English stories that sprouted up in the Middle Ages underneath the Catholic Church. We've got the story of Robin Hood, and we've got the story of King Arthur. But first, the story of Robin Hood, I think, was highly influenced by the story of David. And uh, you'll see, you can see the parallels when you look at the stories. In both Robin Hood and David, you see a man hiding out in the wilderness with a band of men around him. And we all know about Robin Hood and his merry men. David spent years running from Saul until, because, and surrounded, being surrounded by his godly men, his followers, those who abandoned Saul and recognized God's call upon David. And they were willing to live out in the deserts, the, the Middle Eastern version of the forest. They were in caves. They were in caverns. Uh, he was living within Saul's own kingdom for a time until Saul realized what was happening. He realized this was his replacement. He got jealous and literally physically assaulted David with a weapon, and David ran. And so for time out of mind, David is going to be constantly running and hiding from Saul while Saul lives out the rest of his days. Um, Not to get ahead of myself, but um, rewind a little bit. The reason David was in his kingdom, it's not like he just left home and went straight to the kingdom and the king just let the shepherd boy in his door. But um, basically, every well, almost everyone, if you've gone to church as a child, you definitely know the story of David and Goliath. It's... uh, Philistine man, the Philistines were neighbors of Israel, and they were constant threats to Israel. And they raised up this soldier named Goliath, and sources differ on how large he was, but he was definitely massive. And what I find very intriguing is I had a scholar point out to me through one of his books that uh, one of the roots in the Hebrew, uh, somewhere when you describe Goliath, and especially the Philistines, his name can be traced to some of the same roots that the word Nephilim is. And so you've got this trace of giants from Genesis on down through the giants that scared Moses's generation. They didn't want to go into the promised land because of these people, same root. And then down to Goliath, and this the same root there. So that, that could be a genetic strand to turn Goliath into a natural killing machine. Is they'll be like sicking a bulldog on a pack of chihuahuas. None of the Israelites wanted to stand up against this man. Goliath went out to the field every day, and he actually taunted the army of Israel trying to defend the nation against these Philistines. And he says, if any one of your champions can come out to me, uh, you know, let it be done. I'm willing to stand up to any one of you, and I'll have his head, and it'll be my God being proven stronger than the God of Israel. And this was all an accident. David's older brothers, the 
the the storybook princes, the the ones who are tall and strong and athletic. In a Grimm's fairy tale, they would have stood forward. There would have been a damsel in distress, and they would have saved the damsel. David, however, in the reality of this historical story, David shows up just to run an errand. He's just delivering food to his brothers while they're out on the field. They're the ones fight-worthy. David's not. He's a squirt. He's home. And this is even after Samuel's anointing. Samuel anointed the king. He went his way, and the family kind of went on with their lives as usual, but with new knowledge. They knew that God was going to move in some way, but life just kept on as they had known it before. And David shows up to give food to his family, to his brothers, and he overhears Goliath's taunt. Goliath Goliath goes out in the field, taunts the people, and actually makes David so angry that he actually volunteers to be the one to go out there when all these full-grown soldiers didn't dare. And it says he put on some armor, and the armor was made for grown Jewish men, and he was still a teenager, and the armor just didn't fit him. He flopped around in it. Uh, almost comically, and he took it back off. He said, this is no good. There's no way I could move around in this. And so, it. and if you know the story, he literally, to speed this along a little bit, he literally went out there with no protection but his own clothes uh, with five stones and a slingshot, and he pops Goliath between the eyes. And I believe Providence did it in such a way that it triggers something in Goliath's brain because he literally just toppled over unconscious. And, of course, it gets bloody because David, in the standard way of warfare at the time, he cuts off Goliath's head and gives it as a trophy to King Saul. And King Saul sees him at first as a hero, so he brings him into this kingdom. And that's where we get back to where I was a minute ago. He's in the kingdom. Saul slowly starts to realize that this is his replacement. It's not just another addition to his kingdom. This is the new king. Everyone's looking up to him. The people were literally chanting uh, Jewish songs in the street that... Saul may have killed some, but David killed a lot more. David is the hero, and Saul was furious, tries to assault him, and David runs, and now he's surrounded by his men. And there were many times when David had a chance to kill Saul. There's a story of Saul uh, sleeping or uh, relieving himself nearby, and David was literally within reach. He could have easily killed the king with even the simplest of weapons, and all the struggle would have been over. Uh, if if I could kind of just bridge a little bit of nope. gap there. Yeah, you're good. Um, so um, David uh, essentially went on the run. Saul had tried to kill David because, like Robert said, he was getting jealous of David, kind of like putting two and two together. And Saul, of course, didn't like that. He wanted to stay king, and he wanted his son, Jonathan, to become the next king. And so in so doing that, um, Saul attempted to kill David. David went on the run and was in caves. This is the time, kind of like what Robert was talking about earlier, where he was hanging out in the caves. I just wanted to kind of clarify that little bit because it's a little bit confusing because it's like, well, how did that happen? But so in one of the instances of where um, David was hiding out in one of those caves, um, Saul comes to that same cave and relieves himself not realizing David's in that cave like in other words it's kind of like like the cave was really long and 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 at the mouth of the cave he is relieving himself while a little bit further in you can't see like Saul couldn't see David but David could see Saul and so there's an instance of where David had prime opportunity to kill 
saw, and instead of taking that, he chose the higher ground. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Uh, when you're talking, sometimes it's hard to re- remember exactly how much info you tracked with. But yeah, uh, Saul is in a position where he's a sitting duck to David, and David's been on the run from him for so long. And he actually lets Saul go, and his own people ask him, why in the world did you not take this chance? And David kind of proves his worth in that moment. He says, I refuse to touch somebody who God has anointed as king. Even if he retracted it, God still has his anointing on him. In other words, he said he wasn't going to try to force things to happen so quickly and easily. He was going to allow God to get rid of Saul in his own time, in his own way. And so this 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 uh, cat and mouse game drags out for a long, long time. And God actually uses a deep friendship between David and the son Jonathan that Zach mentioned. They actually really loved each other like brothers. And Jonathan did everything in his power to influence the king enough to uh, help David slip away and avoid detection, avoid death for as long as possible. And then the day finally came where they were, and I say they, the king and his son, Saul and Jonathan, were in battle, and things finally did not go well. Jonathan was killed on a hill. Saul saw a defeat, and he was about to be captured and took his own life to avoid the shame of capture. And in a flash, in a single afternoon, everything David had been fighting off finally disappeared. And David became the crowned, throned king of Israel, as God has had anointed him to be years before. And um, I can't remember his name. I'm trying to pull it out of my head as fast as I can so I don't hold this up. But there's a phenomenal Christian author, I believe a pastor. He wrote A Tale of Three Kings. And he was very, it's a very devotional book. It's all about David in early life and in later life. And his insight has always impacted the way I see this episode. He, you know, he asked, why did he allow God? Why did God allow Saul to chase David for so long? Why would he have wasted the boy's time when he could have been king that very afternoon? And the way this author worded it, the way he, he had come to understand the episode was God had allowed Saul to pursue David so that David would actually learn true humility before he took the throne. The way he worded it was God was using Saul to squeeze all of the Saul out of David, make sure that that spirit was not in him when he took the throne to ensure that he would never become everything Saul himself had already become. He wanted David to see the ugliness in all of its dark glory so that when he took the throne, he would run the opposite direction in every way. And he absolutely blew up Israel spiritually. He reinstated uh, conviction of worship of Yahweh throughout the nation. He rekindled the fire through his people. Um, He made plans for building a temple so that this, uh, at the time, worship was at a temporary tabernacle like a tent. And he wanted a permanent building that would be worthy of a God so great. And God himself told him not to. Um, He uh, prepared everything for the building, but God told him to stop until his son became king down the road. He said, since you yourself have blood on your hands, since you have been in battle, you will not be able to build my building. It was more of a symbolic cleanliness thing. And so he said, I will not have my temple built on the blood of death. 
I will wait until you have passed and my and your son will succeed you as king and then he will do so. And so David prepares this temple. Um, he is ready to build it and God stops him. So he leaves that for now. That's a side project that he allows to sit until his time is done. Uh, but uh, there's one wart on David's face that you cannot shake. If you, when you read the accounts of David in the Old Testament, uh, the the first uh, the books of First uh, uh, and Second Samuel, or in the Chronicles, everything about David leads up to this one very public fall, and everything after it looks back to it, and that is the episode of Bathsheba. And some of you may have already known the story, but Bathsheba is the name of a female. And this was a, ma- a woman married to a soldier in his army. And uh, basically, to give the short version, David chose not to fight that day. Like, he was going around uh, routing some enemies, like the Philistines, dri- driving them out of Israel, protecting the borders. And then one day, he sends his army, and he himself doesn't go. And there's been a lot of speculation about why he did it. Some people said it was burnout. Some people said it was a sense of boredom, a loss, a temporary loss of purpose, kind of a lull in his life. And all those things set him up to fail spiritually. I've even heard the argument that he had already kind of fallen into a slump spiritually, but Bathsheba was a public evidence of that. That way the people could see what had happened to their king in that moment. And basically he looks out, And this is kind of shocking when you read the sentence because you think, why would anyone do this? But Bathsheba is taking a bath, I mean a full-on bath. She's completely naked on a roof out in public. And back then, your roof was like your porch. It would be like driving by and glancing and seeing a woman taking a full-on shower with no curtain on her front porch. And it's even been suggested that she did it intentionally to be seen by the king because it was in clear view of his window, and that's more speculation. All we know is that he is there, he sees her, and he finds her so beautiful that he feels like he just has to have her. And So he summons her to his court, and you do not say no to the king. Uh, he is the, the, the pinhead of the entire nation. So she goes, and he sleeps with her, and then he panics because... He knows that he has, he definitely knows he has done wrong in the sight of God. Her husband is at war. And so he actually, his, his first plan, and this is the heartbreaking part, his first plan is to bring this man home for a while. And he thinks, well, of course he's going to sleep with his wife. They'll be happy to see each other. He's been out on the battlefield. He might not return again. They might not get so lucky twice. Anyone's going to spend some intimate time together. And, and not to not to to put break, but one thing the reason why it's such a big deal is because when they had the affair, she got pregnant. Yes. So that was that's a little bit of information you left out, and that's why I'm just bringing that up. <laughs> you're you, good. You left that out. Oh, you're good. So that's why he had to make these plans. Yeah, yeah, and they they so he thought that when when they get together, they are going. Uh, no one will be any the wiser. They'll think that this baby. Uh, which uh, I think my brain was going to get to eventually. Uh, Sorry. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> and, uh, thank you. But uh, they're going to think the baby's his and all will be fine in the world. And instead of spending any time with his wife, it says that the soldier, his name was Uriah, was so loyal 
to David, he actually slept in the floor outside David's bedroom to protect him from enemies. And I mean, this is just more mud on David's face. Like you, you chose to betray one of the most loyal soldiers you'll ever have in your army. And so now David has no other choice in his mind to try to cover this up. Now he knows that once, once the baby's born and then nothing happened between Uriah and Bathsheba, it's all going to point back to him and this is going to get ugly. So he says, now the only thing I can do is get rid of the husband. Let's kill kill the guy. I mean, this is like daytime soap operas. I must murder the man and piano key. Uh, Zoom in on David. And so he sends Uriah back to war, and he arranges for Uriah to be sent to the front lines, which Uriah had not been to yet. So he sends Uriah straight to the front lines. It's like a game of chess where you bring a pawn up, knowing it'll be taken, but you want the to take the pawn for a strategic reason. He just throws Uriah's life away on purpose simply so he won't have to deal with the man when the baby's born. And this, I mean, I mean everything that you thought would David would never do, he does in 24 hours or less. Mm-hmm. And it's just this stain on David that shows where his heart had gotten to over all these years. He'd gotten so complacent his compassion for people, for God, his passion for, you know, the Lord and his service had just dwindled over these over these years. And so, sure enough, Uriah dies as planned, and the baby is born. And Bathsheba, everybody knows what happened. Bathsheba moves into the king's quarters. He becomes basically the, the legal husband of the wife since his, her her first husband had died. And he begins to raise the child. Now, a prophet named Nathan comes and condemns the king to his face. And he basically tells a quick story about uh, a little sheep that uh, someone loved more than anything. And a neighbor came and killed that sheep and ate it simply to entertain some friends and gave no consideration for the love that uh, the owner had for that sheep and David actually got mad and said, who is this? His, his pers- this person's life should be forfeit for this. And prophet said, the prophet says, it is you because of what you did with Bathsheba. And now David was definitely not perfect. And none of the things he did could ever be excused. But when Scripture calls him a man after God's own heart, you see his sincerity in his wickedness and imperfection in the sense that most any king that received this kind of rebuke to his face in front of all his subjects would have simply had the prophet killed. Just kill him and I'll go along my way. David, however, immediately repents. As soon as he hears this and knows that this is a message from God, he he just breaks and he repents and he tries to turn, and the prophet tells him that God has forgiven him for this now that he's repented, but thanks to this, the last half of his kingship, the, the, the last years of his kingship will be thrown into disarray as a consequence of his sin, and it wasn't like God zapped him with the curse. He said this is going to be the direct natural effect of what you have done. Mm-hmm. And long story short, so we can move on to the next king, uh, David, the last years of his reign are actually torn asunder 
by another Saul in his life. Uh, his name is not Saul again. That would have been too much coincidence. But his uh, actually one of his own sons named Absalom. Absalom, uh, long story short, comes to hate his father over um, a, 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 an incidence of rape in the family that David coats over. And Absalom finds this completely unacceptable. And the fault isn't necessarily on David's hands, but Absalom faults David for not doing more about it. And it's a long story, but what it leads to is Absalom hates David and becomes David's second Saul. And so we go from young David on the run from the first king to old David in his gray-haired days running from his own son who's come to hate him because of the domino effect of his sin so long ago with Bathsheba. And David is on the run again, uh, surrounded by a small pack of men again. History repeats itself. And then when his time of burning is done, because God was using this to remind David before his life was over of how far he had come and who he was meant to be. And so his, his repentance was sincere that day in front of the prophet, but God wanted to rework his heart again so that the person he used to be would come back. And so Absalom is repeating the process that Saul already did. And when that time comes for, his, for David's trial to end, Absalom dies by what seems to be a complete accident. He's riding on his horse and his hair catches in a tree branch. His hair was really long and it throws him off and he dangles there. And yeah, and he passes away with his hair tied in the tree. They find his corpse dangling by the hair from this tree branch. And it's just, and again, it's that easy. Once he is dead, David can come back into his kingdom and he lived out the last few years of his reign back where he had been spiritually. He reinvigorates himself. Uh, he rekindles Israel to its former glory. And then slowly it's time for him to pass away. And I'll give it to Zach for Solomon, the next king. But ironically, this is a son of Bathsheba. This is a child who's given out of the bonds of marriage. This is a child, a product of his sin, but God chooses him as Israel's next king. And this is the king that gets the glory that David set up with his godliness. Sol Solomon is the king who brings Israel into its absolute glory days. Okay. Um, so just to kind of back up a little bit. Um, so because it's, it's important to note that um, the issue with Absalom and before him, the guy that they, because Robert had mentioned a rape. Um, so David had, of course, had multiple sons and multiple daughters. Um, the first son that he had was a man named Amnon. Amnon was the man who committed rape. He raped his, I guess it's half-sister. Yep. And um, that's why Absalom... Um, uh, hated David because David basically brushed it off. He didn't do anything about it and didn't even rebuke Amnon at all. Nope. And so um, Absalom takes it upon himself and kills Amnon. Amnon was to be the next king. He, I mean, at least if you follow the laws of succession, he was the firstborn son of the king. So in theory, short of God you know, anointing somebody else, he was next in line. So Absalom killing him avoided that. And then, 
you know, there was that conflict. And then because technically the right of secession then fell to Absalom, Absalom would have been the next king. So if, if Absalom would not have rebelled against his dad, he would have been the next in line to be king. So with Absalom being killed in the battle, um, it kind of left up this whole, like, okay, well, who's going to be king? Um, and it's actually interesting. If you don't do the research um, in, in, the, in, in this situation, you, it kind of seems weird because you have several sons of David that get bypassed for Solomon. So David sees something in his other children that says, these aren't worthy to be king, but Solomon is. Um, and one of the things, there's actually a very short um, instance of where a guy named Joab comes into play because Joab, Joab had a hand in, in Absalom's death. And the reason why this gets kind of brought out a little bit is because whenever uh, David and Absalom are fighting each other, there's actually a battle going on, David, the King David, tells Joab to not harm Absalom, to let Absalom live. Well, Joab does not do that. It's actually partly by Joab's hand that Absalom is killed. And so... Moving forward, one of the last conversations that David has with Solomon is he says, be warned. Joab is out for the throne. And before Solomon takes the crown, before um, that happens, Joab actually institutes, um, because at this point David is really, really old and he's bedridden, he doesn't leave um, his bedchambers. Um, and so Joab kind of takes it upon himself to appoint one of David's other sons as king. And then Bathsheba goes to David, goes to his bedchambers and goes, Hey, look, they're saying, you told me in the past that, uh, that um, my son, Sol our son Solomon would be king but Joab has taken one of your other sons and made him king and then that's whenever um, David's like no 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 I said Solomon was going to be king and so there's a second anointing and so then Solomon is anointed the proper king and when that happens it's kind of like the, the the plot to have like a puppet king is foiled and basically Solomon kills his brothers, not because he wants to kill them, but because they're part of the plot, if that makes sense. It's like some Game of Thrones. It's straight, <laughs> like, yeah. straight up Game of Thrones. Like, oh, yeah. like if, if you wanted material for a book, here it is. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, and you, you read Second Samuel, you read First Kings, this stuff is in there. It's right there. Um, and so Solomon starts off having to kill his own brothers so that he can secure the throne. Because it's a big deal, because he was David's last son, not the first son. There was other sons in between there, and so here he is having to defend his kingship 
against his own brothers, um, which were just, you know, puppets, basically. There's a reason why David looked at his other sons and goes, nope, you guys aren't going to be king. <laughs> Whatever reason, he said Solomon's going to be king. And then Solomon does something crazy. He gets on his knees. After this thing's ha- after he gets anointed king, he gets on his knees and he asks God for wisdom. And that right there is the very first thing that, well, other than killing his brothers <laughs> um, to defend his kingship, one of the first things that he did was to ask God for the wisdom to rule his kingdom. And that the Lord honored and it says in scripture that he gave him the wisdom that surpassed like if any if, if you ever talk to any of the um, Jewish people and you ask them, you know, if, especially if they're familiar with their their heritage and whatever, what was the greatest king? They'll say the two greatest kings are David and after David Solomon. Solomon led Israel to its golden age. He was a man of peace. Like Robert said, he, he didn't have to do bloodshed. Um, he didn't have to fight in wars like his dad did. His dad basically kind of like fought the war, so to speak, you know, did all those things. And Solomon was more like, okay, I'll make a peace agreement. And as a sign of this peace agreement, I will marry your daughter. And that's why he ended up with like 600 wives. A lot of those marriages had to do with peace treaties and things of that nature. That's why he married so many women, other than maybe he had a lust issue. Um, (laughs) Yes. But this was the guy who also wrote several scriptures. He wrote um, the book of Ecclesiastes, which if you're not a Christian, that is one of the most darkest books. All is vanity, 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 vanity. So he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, at least according to Jewish tradition. Um, He also wrote and compiled the book of Proverbs. Um, And then there's something else. Uh, The Song of Solomon. He uh, 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 is an actual love story between a husband and uh, wife. Very, um, uh, if you take it literal, it's very graphic Um, in the sense of, you know, husband and wife intimacy. Um, So, again, David, not David, Solomon did a lot of good things for the kingdom, and was the like I said, the one of the greatest kingdom kings that the kingdom of Israel ever had. Um, it goes on to say that um, that silver was so common, like there was ba- it was basically worthless. Like in other words, there was so much gold, so much prosperity that Israel had because of Solomon and his you know wise rule that they were just so wealthy like and and um sur- like ed- the education was amazing and all the all these fa- like whatever you would think that would um uh culminate as a good kingdom he did these things he built a temple which was at least as far as historically goes it was one of the most beautiful temples covered in gold you know, rare woods, ebony, um, ivory, all, you know, jewels. It was like a splendor, splendorous temple, like beautiful. And it's not just that. He did other things. He, um, 
literature, all those things that he did, considered one of the wisest men to walk the earth. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, one thing that wasn't so wise is he had 600 wives. Um, and actually, it's interesting that um, uh, maybe he kind of, like, like you think about it in a way, it's like, did God really intend for him to do that, or did he kind of step out of bounds and do his own thing? Whereas, because if he would have only married his one wife and and honored the scriptures, because the scriptures in the Old Testament are clear that you are to have one wife and you are to have one husband. So Solomon actually kind of sidestepped God's law and kind of did his own thing by marrying multiple women. Oh, yeah. And so it makes you wonder if, if you know, just kind of being critical of Solomon, like if maybe he didn't do that, it might have forced him to be a king of bloodshed, and which would then nullify his right to build a temple. Um, because God was in, in whenever um, Robert was talking about David and, and how God he wanted to build a temple for God, God first off said, you don't need to even worry about that. I'm outside of all these things. I mean, your heart's in the right place now, but am, am, I, am I a God that I actually need a place to dwell? And the answer to that was no. Now, of course, the people of Israel wanted that focal point, and so did King David, and so did Solomon. So Solomon did build a temple, but it makes you wonder if it was on God's agenda to, for the temple to actually be built or not. Makes you wonder. Um, just one of those little random thoughts that I have every so often that uh, doesn't really matter about anything, but just random rabbit trail. Um, but anyway, um, so and and the reason why I bring up his wives is because in his older days, yes, he followed in the beginning. He followed Yahweh was loyal to Yahweh, but the scripture says in his older days, all of his went, the wives that he married led him astray, led other um, gods into Israel. And so you see um, uh, representations of different deities besides Yahweh come into Israel by these uh, multiple wives. And it says in the scriptures, excuse me, that these women led De uh, Solomon's heart away from the truth. Now, um, one thing that did happen was kind of about this time where toward, towards the latter part of Solomon's life, um, there is a man that kind of challenges the, the norms, so to speak. There's no outward bloodshed. There's no war necessarily, but God, um, I won't say necessarily raises up, but this other gentleman by the name of uh, Jeroboam comes into play. And this guy um, kind of begins making rumblings and grumblings about the state of affairs because that was one thing. It was like the Israel was really good and it was really prosperous, but just like anywhere... Nothing is perfect, and so you, there are going to be instances of injustice, and there's going to be hardship to some degree, 
And here comes Jeroboam to kind of be a thorn in Solomon's side. Um, again, there was no actual warfare that I can recall off the top of my head. Um, basically, I think what happens is Solomon gets word of Jeroboam's kind of like plot and goes after him, and then Jeroboam flees to Egypt for the rest of Solomon's life. And the reason why I bring up Jeroboam is because Solomon's son is named Rehoboam, and I'm going to let Robert take over <coughs> this next, what time are we looking at? Well, we're actually closing in on an hour. So okay. That's perfect. So, well, yeah, yeah, so we'll, we'll just go ahead and, and save that for next time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Any final thoughts, uh, Robert, on this episode before we dive into the next part? Yeah. Uh, thank you guys for listening to this episode on the United Kingdom. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking about the Divided Kingdom, and those are not parks at Disney World. Those are actually two different <laughs> sections of Old Testament Jewish history that we've covered. Now, the ones that you've heard so far from Saul to David to Solomon, those are known as the United Kingdom simply because all of Israel was combined during these times. Uh, next episode, you'll hear about um, horrible civil war and a split. But uh, in the meantime, be th uh, something for us all to think about, who is going to be your king? And the reason that the scriptures put so much emphasis on the kings, especially David and Solomon, isn't just because they're kings and they're important to history. They are, but they are very important to spiritual history. God came to David, and he actually came to him in a vision, and he promised him the same way he promised Abraham way back in the day when he founded Israel. The same word is used in Hebrew. God says, I'll make a covenant with you because of your godliness, your sincerity, your love for me, David. I am going to establish your throne literally forever. No one is ever going to take it away, and your descendants, your line, is going to sit forever upon the earth. And so, long stretch ahead, that ultimately gets fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is, as I mentioned earlier, he's the branch of Jesse. He is directly through the bloodline of David. He's born in Bethlehem, the hometown of David. He's known as the son of David, and when he rules the world and comes down from heaven for all eternity, he will rule in the name of his earthly father, David. His, his true father will be Yahweh, but David's name will be with him on that throne for all eternity as David himself bows to him. And so will your king be yourself? Will you serve yourself? Will you bow down to your own desires? Will you basically bow to the mirror? Or will you bow to this son of David who lives forevermore? Amen. All right. Thank you, guys, and uh, everyone listening out there. Um, thanks for uh, joining us on this episode. Uh, one last time, if you want to interact with us, definitely visit our Facebook page, the Achieving Christian Thought Podcast. Um, they're on Facebook. Uh, leave us a like, leave us a message. We'd love to hear from you and can't wait to hear uh, part two of the Divided Kingdom. That sounds uh, really interesting. So see you all uh, next time.